0: Encourage you to turn uh, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter twenty. We a few weeks ago began looking at the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, and the first uh, the first ten or the first four of the the Ten Words dealt with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the last six uh, commandments, five through ten, uh, deal with loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so we're going to. Look at those together this morning, and if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, we'll be looking at uh, all the, we'll be reading all the Ten Commandments, focusing on uh, Commandments 5 through 10 in our time together here, studying the word. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. And Father, we do ask this morning for your continued grace as we worship together. We thank you for the those who've worked to... Help us sing worship to you, describe the word through your name, through our, through our voices. And now we pray that you'd help us to, to think carefully about what it means to to love you and our neighbors, to, to rightly worship you as we care for one another. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. Well, we, we have a, a lot to cover this morning, kind of dive right in. Remember, a few weeks ago we began looking at the Ten Commandments and we, we thought about, okay, what does this mean for those of us who are new covenant believers, for those who are under the law of Christ? How do we approach these, these 10 words, these 10 commandments? And we thought about what Jesus says in Matthew 22, where Jesus says that there are two great commandments, and the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and so we, we thought about that. And then Jesus also says that the second commandment is like it. It's it's related to it. And that commandment is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus said all the law and the prophets are are consumed in these things. They hinge on these things. All of the law and the prophet can really be summed up by these two great commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. And a few weeks ago we talked about how we who are under the law of Christ can approach these first four commandments and learn what it means to love God wholly and uniquely. Now we come to these next six commands, and we see in them something about loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, and we understand, okay, how do I love my neighbor as I love myself, as I look at these six commandments? What are the, the essence of what God would have me do here? And that phrase love your neighbor as you love yourself is kind of an interesting phrase. It's a phrase that uh, we see in Leviticus, we see it repeated several times in scripture and and sometimes people have seen in that that commandment two commands. Whenever I was in high school and middle school, elementary school, kind of that time frame, there was a a big push in some Christian circles for Kind of a, a self-esteem movement. There was a belief that you needed to really infuse your children with self-esteem, help them to, to love themselves, and they kind of looked at this instruction and said, look, there's two commands here. You have to love others, but before you can love others, you have to love yourself. And uh, my parents kind of heard that teaching, and they looked at me, they looked at my brothers and my sister, and they said, nah, I don't really see that. Um, I think these kids love themselves plenty. Um, they don't need more self-esteem, they need less and uh, I think my parents were certainly right in that. What we see in this command is not a command to love ourselves. What we see here is an instruction by God on people to put themselves in other people's circumstances and say, "Okay, how would I like to be treated?" This phrase, "Love your neighbors, you love yourself," is a phrase that you see other cultures using around this same time period, and, and it meant to think about your, your obligation of relationship to others. So, for example, if you were a, a servant of a king, how would you want to be treated by a servant if you were the king? That's what this phrase means. It's essentially the golden rule. As we come to these six commands that we're looking at this morning, we need to be asking ourselves, okay, as someone whose heart has been transformed by the gospel. What does it look like for me to love others sacrificially, to to lay down my life for them? By nature, we are incredibly selfish people. My natural inclination is, is to not think about you, but to think about myself. I'm more concerned about my physical ailments than yours just left to myself. I'm much more concerned about my finances than yours. I'm much more concerned about whether or not I'm getting what I deserve than whether or not you're getting what you deserve. And so God's call on his people is to think about the relational obligation to one another. Say, okay, as you interact with one another, you need to to love others. You need to sacrificially give of yourself for their benefit. And that means thinking very carefully about how we should treat each other. So what I want to do is I want to go through these these commands and we're not going to spend we're doing kind of a survey of the Pentateuch we're not going to go in as in-depth as maybe we might like but we're going to kind of go through each of these commands and say okay what's what's the essence of this command what is what are we learning about God and how he would have us love others in this command and then think about how as a result of being transformed by the gospel we can be obedient to these things. Okay, so here's, here's the, the fifth command. The fifth command we see here in verse 12, honor your father and mother. God says through Moses, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that, your, Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, the word honor encompasses more than just obedience, right? This isn't a command just given to kids, saying kids, obey mom and dad. This is a command given to adults as well, saying you have an obligation to honor your parents, Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Malachi chapter 1, and in Malachi chapter 1, God is concerned that his people aren't honoring him as they ought. They think they are. They're surprised that God doesn't feel like he's being worshipped. The priests are saying, look, we're offering sacrifices. How in the world would you say that we're not honoring your name? And God says, look, you're honoring me by offering these these uh, crippled or diseased animals, and th- that's not... Reflecting of my worth and my glory. As we think about our parents, our obligation to them is not to ask ourselves, "Okay, what's the bare minimum I can do for mom and dad and get away f- with it?" The question we ask ourselves is, "Okay, these these people that God has placed in this position in my life, how do I how do I honor them? How do I, I ascribe worth to them in a way that they can?" see how valuable they are by God's grace. I think we've allowed ourselves and our thinking here to be shaped by our culture in so many ways, but but here's what I would say the heart of the commandment is, the the heart of the commandment that's, that's impossible to obey without God's grace. We must recognize our parents' worth and express that through sacrificial actions. We need to recognize our parents' worth and then, and then that, that recognition that we have needs to be ex- expressed through action. We don't say, okay, what's the bare minimum I can do and, and make mom and dad happy, fulfill this obligation. We say, okay, here's the, here are these people that God has placed in my life and, and how do I respond to them in such a way that their worth and value is, is known, is manifested through how I act. Remember, Jesus tells the scribes and the Pharisees that they've missed it. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites. He says, you, you honor God with your lips, but your heart is far from him. And he says that, in vain do they worship me, teaching His doctrines the commandments of men. And he says, uh, he, he talks about, he gives an example. He says, you know, the, com- the commandment is to honor your father and mother, but instead of honoring your father and mother, you're failing to honor your father and mother. You have this obligation to physically provide for them, but instead of physically providing for them, the Pharisees had said, we're taking our wealth and our, our physical resources and we're devoting, you know, quote-unquote, devoting them to God. And so mom and dad need something? You say, well, mom and dad, boy, I, you know me, I love you. I'd love to help you, but I've devoted everything to God and I can't steal from God to give to mom and dad, so I'm sorry. You know, I can still continue to draw from these funds, but but you can't. Sorry. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's, that's not the hard attitude of the command at all. A person who takes that attitude toward mom and dad makes void, he says, the word of God by your tradition. And I would say that we, in our culture, have a tradition, have a culture that doesn't honor parents, that doesn't recognize the God-given obligation that we have to sacrificially care for them. First Timothy 5, 4 it says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness. And, and what does that mean? It's, it's talking about physical care for them. Let them show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing the sight of the Lord. So the heart of this commandment is to recognize the worth of our parents and to express it through through sacrificial physical ways. I think there are, are two ways that we that we disobey this commandment. There's many ways, two ways two significant ways that we are disobedient to this commandment. One is we tell ourselves that the command doesn't apply to us. Some of us have been blessed with incredible parents. Fallen parents, sure, all of us, but, but some of us have been blessed with incredible parents who we know love us. And so it's very easy for us to say, yeah, I recognize I have this obligation. Some of us, have parents who haven't acted as God would want them to. And the temptation can be for us to say, look, I'm under no obligation to honor them because they haven't been worthy of honor. So this doesn't apply to me. But we see, as we'll talk about in a moment, this isn't ultimately about the parents, this is about the Lord. and So all of us are under obligation because of the position that God has placed them, whether they've been worthy of it or not, they are due honor. Now, others of us would say we fail in a different area or a different way. We we recognize we have this obligation, and yet we have so minimalistically defined our obligation as to make it almost worthless. Again, we kind of ask, okay, what's what's the bare minimum I need to do? And I'll, I'll do that and say that I've honored mom and dad, and yet our honoring of our parents certainly isn't reflected in in sacrificial action. If you were to ask your parent, do you feel honored by me, what would they say? And if they say no, would they be correct? If they say yes, would they be correct? Or are they just really nice? The gospel gives us hope here, right? Paul and Ephesians talks about how you know we're saved by grace through faith. It's not a result of works. It's a gift of God that no one can boast. And then he goes on into Ephesians six and he says, "Children, obey your parents in the Lord." How does this obedience take place? Well, it's only possible through the gospel. As we find ourselves in Christ, we now have the ability to be obedient. And Paul says that the beauty of the beauty of being in Christ and honoring mom and dad as we are supposed to is is blessing. He says this is the first commandment. This this fifth commandment is the first commandment with blessing. It'll it'll go well with you in the land. In other words, as a person responds rightly to mom and dad, it means that, that God is gracious to them in other areas of life. Other relationships kind of fall into place as we rightly recognize the need to honor mom and dad. It's really practical, right? For those of you who are kids, it means that you respond to mom and dad with obedience. Mom and dad say, "Hey, this is what you need to do. It's time to it's time to go to bed. It's time to stop watching TV. It's time to um, eat some ice cream." Uh, you, you say, "Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. I'm going to do those things." Uh, a child who doesn't have an obedient heart, a heart that's honoring mom and dad, may kind of kind of physically go through some of the motions of obedience, but it's kind of like this. It's like you know, hey, mom and dad say, "Hey, it's time to go to bed." <sighs> Okay, fine. Not obedience, not honoring. As we get older, obedience looks different, and or honoring looks different. It means avoiding bitterness to, to take root in our heart. It means to avoid thinking through the negative thing. Mom and dad did this to me, or, or dad did this to me, or I can't believe mom treated me this way when I was this old. It means I'm, I'm letting those things go, as Phil talked about last week with forgiveness. I'm not going to, to hold on to perceived wrongs. What's also interesting, as we look at this commandment and other places in Scripture, this, this is very interesting. The burden of responsibility for so many of these things is placed upon those who are children, not the parents. In other words, sometimes, you know, as I've, I've talked with, with people kind of my, my age, and as you deal with parents, you say, well, you know, I've heard friends say, well, I, I wish... Mom and dad would do this, or I wish my parents had done that, or I wish they'd, they'd treat me this way right now. And I think it's a fair thing to, to want some of those things sometimes. And yet at the same time, those of us who are children with, with parents who are still living and are adults say, look, the burden responsibility in Scripture here is, is often on me. I'm responsible for reaching out to mom and dad. I'm responsible for caring for them. The the, the burden is, is is not on them but on me. And certainly in terms of physical provision, the burden is, is absolutely not on mom and dad. The result is on me. And in our culture, uh, this, is, this is getting really twisted sometimes, right? There's an expectation that children often have on parents to continue to f- physically provide for them, and that's certainly not what we see the biblical model of honoring look like. The biblical model of honoring is we get out, we get a job, and then we're in a position to help our parents, not to have them feel the obligation to take care of us. In the story of the prodigal son, the son is the bad guy in terms of offensive behavior towards parents as he wants dad's money. We honor our parents as we take ownership of this relationship and and say, "I'm, I'm going to honor them. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder it's two words in the Hebrew, essentially, never murder. And that word murder doesn't just mean the taking of a human life. We see that in the Pentateuch and the Old Testament law, it's permissible to take a life in war. Capital punishment is permissible. But what this is describing is the, the violent taking of someone else's life for, for selfish purposes. Never permissible. The heart of the commandment here that's impossible to obey unless we're under the law of Christ. The heart here is that, that we're to sacrificially love and care for all life. As we talked about First John, remember we get to the heart issue of murder. There are, are two ends of the spectrum. On one end is laying down our life, and on the other end of the spectrum is murder. And what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 is similar to what John tells us in First John 3. We either have the heart of a murderer or the heart of a person who's been transformed by the gospel and loves the brothers and sisters. John writes in 1 John 3.15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. And so there are two options before us. We can either sacrificially lay down our lives for one another, or we can have the heart of a murderer, a heart that hates. You either make a commitment to lay down your life for brothers and sisters in Christ, or you're somewhere along the spectrum of, of heading toward murder. Murder is the ultimate expression of, of selfishness. Laying down your life, loving each other is the ultimate expression of selflessness. And those who've been transformed by the gospel are called to love, to lay down our life. A person who is selfish is is somewhere along that spectrum of, of wanting things for themselves. The ultimate expression of that, of course, murder. Our hearts are unbelievably selfish, right? Unbelievably selfish. The command here is to not just be pro-life in kind of this abstract sense of saying, okay, well, I want to protect life that's unborn, and I want to protect uh, life of the aged and the ill. But a person who's pro-life says, yes, I'm against uh, the taking of innocent human life at any stages. I'm against suicide. I'm against euthanasia. I'm against abortion. But when we say pro-life, we're saying I'm, I'm committed to a radically sacrificial life as I lay down my life for others. That's The essence of the command, that's the essence of what it means to be pro-life. A pro-life person cannot be a selfish person. A person who is pro-life says, I am pro-laying down my life for the brothers and sisters and others. Seventh command here, you shall not commit adultery. Now, in this culture, in the ancient Near East culture in which Moses is is living and, and writing, Adultery was called the great sin. You see it in, in several contemporary uh, cultures with, with Moses and the Israelites and kind of around this this time frame. It's called the great sin. And we see this description in the Old Testament as well. So for example, Genesis chapter 20 verse 9, remember Abraham is not told the the, the people that Sarah is his wife and... Abimelech, the king, calls Abraham, he's, he's taken Sarah, and he, he hasn't uh, consummated that relationship, but he's, he's thinking he's going to do that. And Abimelech calls Abraham and says, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? In other words, this great sin is the sin of adultery, violating the marriage relationship. And Abimelech is, is upset with Abraham that Abraham wouldn't tell him, wouldn't let him know these things. Exodus chapter 32 we'll get to this in a few weeks the sin with the the golden calf and uh, the the people are engaged in this sexual immorality and Moses says to Aaron what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them verse 30 of Exodus 32 the next day Moses said to the people you have sinned a great sin and then he goes to the Lord and he says, the people have sinned a great sin. Now, why is adultery called a great sin? The reason is because there's a recognition, there's been a recognition throughout human history that there is something special about the marriage relationship, the relationship between one man and one woman, ultimately. Cultures mar that image, certainly at times, but Most cultures have recognized the special nature of the marriage relationship. It's part of God's common grace. Now, when a culture rejects this relationship, the marriage relationship, and begins to mar that, what they are doing is rejecting a a beautiful picture that God has given them of, of himself and his relationship with his people. God's steadfast love and faithfulness to his people is pictured in a relationship between a, a man and a woman who are devoted to one another in marriage. And as a culture celebrates that, and as a culture recognizes that, they gain an incredible picture of, of who God is. Romans chapter 1 describes the rejection of that. It says, God gave them up, this is, this is people who are turning away from God, he gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the the creator. I'm sorry, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so this this we saw this in Genesis. This created marriage relationship is supposed to be this beautiful picture of, of the relationship between God and His people, and as we as we commit to that picture of, of sexuality and marriage, we gain an understanding of what it looks like to worship God. And as we, as we reject that imagery, we reject worship of God. In this commandment, you shall not commit adultery, we see many other commandments that are going to come through the Old Testament law uh, elaborate upon this, this commandment. So for example, prohibitions against divorce, premarital sex, cohabitation without marriage, bestiality, homosexuality, incest, all these things kind of flow out of this, this one command. This is what the marriage relationship is supposed to be like, and you're not to violate it. Now, as we go through the law, all sorts of other examples of that violation are going to take place, and we'll talk more about sexuality in the coming weeks and months as we go through the law. What's the heart of this commandment? What's the heart of this commandment that, that again, is impossible to obey apart from a heart transformed by Christ? You are are to have a heart that is devoted to your spouse alone, especially in terms of of your sexuality. Your heart is to be devoted to your spouse alone. Now, now there's two words there that, that I want us to think about. One is the word alone. One is the word alone. What we mean there is that the proper place for sexuality to be expressed in a marriage relationship is only within a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. And the commitment to this by both single people and married people, the commitment to this idea of alone is an act of worship. In other words, as a single person, as you say, I understand that that I have been given sexuality by God, and I understand that the the, the proper place for expression of this was in the marriage relationship. I'm committing to that ideal. As you, as a single person, commit to that ideal of this alone being the place that I express, express this, you are engaging in worship. It's not like you all of a sudden get married and become sexual. We have sexuality that God has given to us and we express it in the marriage relationship and as we make that commitment to do so, we engage in worship. That's and you know as we talk as I talk with my kids as they get older, as we talk about why we have these ideas about marriage and these ideas about what's proper and improper, we say look, look this is this is why because it's not about mom and dad and restrictive rules. It's not about just Um, wanting to keep you from enjoying life. It's about worshiping God, and that's our ultimate purpose. The single person says, okay, I'm going to reject pornography. I'm going to reject promiscuity. I'm going to reject uh, easy relationships. I'm going to pursue this. The married person struggles in this area, right? The the married person can struggle in this area as they struggle with the same things, and as they they seek uh, relationships outside the marriage relationship. And so, The word here is is alone. The heart is devoted to your your spouse alone, and that's a proper place for sexuality to be expressed. The other word that I think is important to think about here is the word devoted, right? Your heart is to be devoted to your spouse alone. And some people can say this and say, look, uh, I have not engaged in adultery. I haven't had an affair, I haven't um, emotionally or physically pursued another person, and therefore I haven't violated this command. And yet, this, this expression, you shall not commit adultery, also implies that there is to be a, a pursuit of our spouse. To have a heart devoted to your spouse doesn't mean coldness, it doesn't mean distance, it means actively, physically, emotionally pursuing your spouse if you're in a marriage relationship. Now, um, I know this is a hard issue for for many people. And there is no one in this room above a certain age who hasn't failed to think rightly about this this issue. And there's no one who has been perfect in thinking about this as God would exactly have them think about it or act on it. Some would say, this is so discouraging. (laughs) Especially because it's called a great sin, the great sin. I've committed the great sin. I'm toast. Let me offer a word of encouragement from from Jesus in Luke 7. From the story in Luke 7, a Pharisee has asked Jesus to eat with him, and and, uh, Jesus comes to the Pharisee's house. He reclines at table, and, and while he is reclining, a woman comes in. Luke describes her discreetly as a sinner. She sees Jesus, she brings this flask of of ointment, and she weeps and begins to wet his feet with her tears and wipes his feet with the hair of her head and kisses his feet and anointed them with ointment. The Pharisee sees this and he knows who this woman is, and he says, Boy, if Jesus knew who was touching him, he would he would be disgusted by this. And and Jesus knows what the Pharisee is thinking, and, and so he tells Simon, this Pharisee, the story of a moneylender who had two debtors, one owed him a great amount, one owed him a small amount. He forgave both debts, and he asks Simon now, Simon, who loved the moneylender more? said, well, the one who owed him a great debt. And Jesus says, that's right. And he says, look at this woman. You, you didn't love me. She hasn't stopped wetting my feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair. He didn't kiss me, but from the time I came in, she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. And then he, he says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven.'" Little loves little. Brothers and sisters, here's here's the hope of of God's grace. God's grace covers even those areas in our life that that cut us to our core. For many of us, sexuality uniquely affects our perception of ourselves, and yet God is, is gracious. He is so very gracious, and it is a graciousness, That doesn't bring shame, but is a graciousness that fuels worship. The person who has been forgiven much. Loves much, and the hope of the gospel is this: No matter who you were, and First Corinthians six talks about who you who you used to be, and he talks about uh, sexual sins. He says uh, the unrighteous, the, the sexually immoral, the idolater, the adulterers, the people who practice homosexuality, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers—all these sins. None of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. and you think, Oh man, that's that's so terrible. And he says, but and some and such were Some of you, in other words, in the in the past, you were identified by those sins, and the hope in the gospel is that that. that now you are no longer that, fill in the blank with whatever that is. You say, but I still struggle in these areas. Well, here's the the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is is not that you have to to work to a certain level to achieve a certain amount of righteousness before God can accept you. Here's here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel says this, you are a sinner, you are an adulterer, you you are whatever you want to fill in the blank with that list from 1 Corinthians 6 and beyond. You you are that. And the vileness of, of whatever it is that you've done to offend a holy God, and, and many, many struggle with shame as they think about the past, as they think about things they struggle with in, in the present. The beauty of the gospel is whatever it is that you were, God takes that and He lays the vileness of that on Jesus. And the temptation that we have is twofold. Sometimes our temptation can be to minimize the sin that we have. Ah, you know, this this sexual sin isn't that bad. That sexual sin isn't that bad. That's not the right way to think about it. He takes whatever sin that is, the vileness of it, and and Jesus takes it on himself. And then the other temptation we have is to say, well, I'll never never be victorious here. I, I don't have any hope of forgiveness. The gospel tells us this. Jesus takes our sin upon him and then... We receive his perfect righteousness. Now, how righteous is Jesus? He is absolute righteousness. He never had a wrong thought about, about anything sexual. He had never acted wrongly toward another person. His, his, his thoughts and his actions were 100% righteous. And now, by God's grace, through believing in Jesus, he takes upon him my sin and I receive his righteousness and have hope of perfect obedience. Through, through him, through clinging to him. I stand before God positionally with Christ's righteousness, and then I, I live in that righteousness as I continue to cling to him. I am devoted to my spouse alone, single or, 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 or married. I'm, I'm devoted to that, that principle. I worship God through it. I don't love as I ought. I don't, I don't think as I ought. And the good news of the gospel is, look, You don't don't have to do that. You cling to Jesus who does those things perfectly. God's graciousness is a graciousness that doesn't bring shame but fuels worship. The one who has been forgiven much loves much. The eighth commandment here, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. Daddy hears that there's ownership and the person who steals is a person who sees something that someone else has and takes it from them. Just, okay, I see what you have. I think it looked rather nice in my home. And they remove it from that person. The essence of this command is is uh, to to take something from our, our neighbor by stealth, something that doesn't belong to us. And it's it's the big things. It's the obvious things, right? It's the it's the, the Bernie Madoff, uh, stealing from, from people's uh, retirement funds and, and their, all, their, all their money. It's, it's, it's those things that are clearly theft. It's stealing from the grocery store, but, but it goes deeper than that as well, right? We fail to be obedient to this command when we don't give something that which is owed them as well. So I, I owe my parents honor, and I don't give it to them. I'm robbing them. I owe God worship and glory, and I don't give that to him, and I, I rob him. Paul says there's an outstanding debt that we have to one another to, to love each other, and so when I don't love you, I, I'm a thief. There was a pastor who told me about something he did that was incredibly bold, and I would never do this. It shocked me, but um, but it was effective, so maybe. Um he was, he was talking to his congregation and they'd, they'd had some financial struggles and, and he came before the congregation one morning and he, and he said, uh, I have a very serious announcement to make. Um, we've discovered that someone has, has robbed from the church. It's a, it's a terrible thing. We found out that someone's robbed from the church. And he went on and on. You could hear a pin drop. There was just so much tension in the air. And he talks about, and we need to deal with it. We need to deal with it publicly. And uh, the person who is stolen from the church is you. And it was a message on you guys need to give to the Lord. We owe God. We owe God glory. We owe, we owe him physical gifts, they're his anyway. We owe our employer a full day's work. We come to work and, and we kind of goof off for a couple hours, you know, warm-up hour, and then we kind of get on social media we do all, and we do all these things that aren't, we're not supposed to be doing. We're robbing our employer. And we tell ourselves, well, you know, employer, you did this to me or she did that to me, and so it's okay. No, no, we, we owe God. We owe our employer. We owe our king honor, our, our, our governmental authorities. What's our hope? Our hope in the gospel is that we have Christ's righteousness. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with with anyone in need. What what, what is he saying here? Paul earlier said, "Okay, here's here's how you become a a believer. You become a believer through God's grace, not through your work. And then you come into the last half of Ephesians. This is now how. Here's how the the gospel manifests itself in your life. You put off the old self who you were. You put on who you are now in Christ as you cling to Him. And for the person who has been tempted to rob, now you become a giver. You give lavishly. You work with your own hands so you can give instead of take." That's the essence of obedience to the Eighth Commandment. A person who has been given much, a person who has received freely, now gives freely. To be obedient to this commandment, you become a person, by God's grace, who is lavish with your generosity. Ninth commandment here. Ninth commandment, you shall not give false testimony. It says in verse 16, you shall not bear a false witness against your neighbor, there's dishonesty that contributes to injustice in this culture. And, and God's instruction here is you have a responsibility to speak that which is in agreement with the truth. In Leviticus 5, we see that if a person hears that there's a trial going on and people are, are commanded, hey, if you have anything to say, you need to say it. In Leviticus 5, we see if a person knows something that they need to say and then they don't say it, they're, they're guilty of disobedience, they're guilty of lying. Now, what then is the, the essence of this command? The essence of this command is you and I must boldly confess that which is true no matter the cost. It means in our relationships with one another, we're boldly saying that which is true. We're speaking the truth with love. It also means that as as people who have been tasked by God to proclaim the good news of the gospel, for us to fail to proclaim the good news of the gospel to other people means that we are liars. We know the right way to live, we know the hope of the gospel, and if we fail to communicate the hope of the gospel to the people that God has placed in our life, we are not bold confessors, we are liars, we're in violation of the the commandment here, the word. Paul, again in Ephesians 4, again for those who have been transformed by the gospel, would say, "We, we put away falsehood and let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor we are our members of one another there's a relational obligation we have to sacrificially lay down our life to sacrifice prestige to sacrifice relationship for the the joy of proclaiming truth to each other 10th commandment you shall not covet you shall not covet verse 17 you shall not covet and and then that word covet means to desire Desire itself isn't right, but here he's talking about a heart attitude that, that desires things that aren't ours. He says, don't desire your neighbor's house, don't covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor. Now, now what's the heart of the commandment there? The heart there is God's saying, you need to value me and trust in my provision and, and love each other. And a, and a heart that is concerned and upset about what other people have and wants that for itself. That, that heart is not a heart that's trusting in God and valuing things that God values and, and worshiping him. Remember, I, I said love of God and love of neighbor are, are, are so essentially connected. And as I, as I look at what other people have and I say, boy, I want that. I want that thing. I want to be, I want to be that I want to look that way. I want to be that size. I want to have those things. As I begin to do that, I'm, I'm, I'm turning my eyes off of God and the value and worth that I find only in him. And I'm saying, I want other things, and I'm not content unless I have those things. I'm not content in the provision that God has given me. This past week, uh, on over the weekend, uh, the, the Davidsons and Whitney and I were in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We had a great opportunity to go and just spend some time with some different churches down there and and interact with and kind of talk about ministry and think about some some ministry um, growth for us. And it was just just a neat time with with them and with other uh, pastors and and people in ministry. And so much of of what we talked with other people about was, was so valuable. We just kind of would kind of pepper some people with questions. How do you handle this? How do you handle that? And it was just very neat. But on Monday, we were kind of walking around the Dallas-Fort Worth area and kind of walking around this, this one church, and and uh, for those of you who don't know, the Dallas-Fort Worth area is just going crazy in terms of, of people moving there and businesses moving there. I think like 500 people a day are moving to the Metroplex. It's just it's just crazy, right? And many of the things that the, we're talking with one pastor, especially on Monday, and, and just he was being so gracious with his time, and many of the things that he was telling me were just so helpful for me to kind of download and think about how to improve my ministry and then some of the things that he was saying I was like you know I just just can't identify with this um, you know he was talking about problems with uh, you know uh, growth in the Metroplex and you know the business is coming here and, and just uh, uh, kind of having to hire out a lot of things as a church because there's so much construction and building and you know they're, they're thinking through how do we do a valet ministry Uh and I'm thinking yeah, I just, I can't identify with that. And, and I, I have to confess, as I, as I saw the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I thought, it's not, it's not fair that those of us in central Illinois are having to deal with what we're having to deal with. So Monday, I experienced that. Tuesday, I come back, and you know, there's that announcement made by an employer in the area, and it's just kind of like, oh, come on, that doesn't seem right. Why, why do we get that announcement? And those people down there get that announcement. You know, that those, those things going on there. Well, what is that? It's the heart of a coveter, right? Why don't I have it easy like that? Now, I'll tell you this. You know, this morning, uh, worshiping with my brothers and sisters at Bethany, I was like, boy, it doesn't matter how many New buildings are coming up in a community. This is pretty special, <laughs> but I didn't feel that necessarily on Tuesday as I was thinking about the difficulty that my brothers and sisters, who I love, are going to be going through potentially. You know, you, you, and you extrapolate right. I was talking to Kent about that, and, and Kent uh, Kent said, "Well, um, what you really need to think about are pastors who are impoverished, who are pastors who are shepherding in impoverished areas of the world." And I said, "No, I don't." <laughs> no, what's Kent's point? His point is exactly right. My temptation is, is not to look at the people that don't have it as, as good as I do. My temptation is is to look at at communities that have it better than my community, or people who are in in some area or one area. My my temptation is to say, "I wish I wish that that one thing that that person has that I don't have. I wish I had that that." You know, one time I was talking with someone about, um, about housing, and they said, you know, if, if the house I live in right now just had larger closets, I'd be happy. I said, really? He said, well, larger closets and a bigger backyard. And I said, really? Okay, larger closets, a bigger backyard, and a nice deck. But those things would be it. You know? It's not true, right? There's always something more. And the person who's a coveter, the person who says, man, there's always something more, is always going to find something more. The universe is a big place full of a lot of physical things and we can always want more of them. What God says is, is I'm enough. I'm enough. Delight in me. As you delight in me, you're going to rejoice in what your brothers and sisters have. God's command here is is so gracious. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, soul, mind, strength. And then love one another. Your love for me, seeing me as the ultimate value, is going to to cause you to, to, to be unable to do anything but love each other, to sacrificially lay down your life for the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ. God is gracious to us and provides us that opportunity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. In him, we have life. In him, we have love for each other. Help us to love one another rightly from our hearts. We pray this in your son Jesus' name, trusting upon you alone for strength. Amen.